0: Welcome back, language professionals, to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is Mireya, your host. And like always, I am very grateful that you're joining me here today for another great conversation with another great language professional. But first, I'd like to point out a couple of things that we'll be celebrating this month. Number one, February is my birthday month, so yay, happy birthday to me! Number two, there's also something else that we celebrate in February – Do you know what that is? I'll give you a little bit of time to think about it. (laughs) Did you guess it? It's the podcast's anniversary, and this year we're celebrating three years. That's right. It's been three years of amazing interpreter stories, language professionals that come on here and share their experiences over 40,000 downloads in the entire lifespan of the podcast, heard globally. Imagine that, heard globally. So, wow, thank you so much for your support wherever you are, tuning in and listening and coming back and listening for more and sharing your feedback. A huge shout out to those that continuously come back and and listen and tune in and support this podcast. Los Angeles, California continues to hold the number one spot with the city with the most downloads of this podcast. So if you're out in Los Angeles, you contribute to the success of this podcast. Thank you so much. Go LA. Additionally, some of you have been super busy in showing me some love this new year by going in and reviewing the podcast, rating and reviewing the podcast. So a huge shout out to Rosie the Linguist, Lore Ilam, Anthony5383, and Veronica D. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. So, the official anniversary date is February 20th, and it all started one day with a thought. And if you are a subscriber to the premium content on the podcast, by the way, thank you also to those of you that have signed up for the premium content. You'll be hearing some of the stories behind how the Brand The Interpreter podcast came to be, which you don't typically listen or hear about uh, during my conversations with the language professionals because Brand the Interpreter is about highlighting the language professional. So we can't really talk about that stuff, but um, now that I'm more comfortable with the microphone and, you know, obviously with the podcast, I'm able to talk to you one-on-one a little bit further, but I do that on the subscription side. So uh, for those of you that have subscribed, you'll get to tune in to that special episode with the three year anniversary, woo! So I'm so excited, thank you guys once again. Okay, and now, on with the show. Today's guest, Eulogio Espinosa, has been a professional interpreter for close to a decade now. He currently works for Centro Binacional as an interpreter coordinator, creating new contracts and advocating services for indigenous community interpreters. And it is an honor and a privilege to have the space and a platform to allow the opportunity to share more about indigenous interpreting. So without further ado, please help me welcome Eulogio Espinosa to the show. Eulogio, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here today. I'm very uh, excited to be able to have this conversation and excited because I think it's a it's a topic that unfortunately we don't hear too much about uh, out there in the interpreting community and it has to do with um indigenous language interpreters and I'm excited to uh, offer the opportunity on this platform to have someone come and speak about this very important topic. So again, I welcome you and thank you for being here.
1: Yes, thank you. Same. Thank you for inviting me and also having this platform to talk a bit about the experience of being an Indigenous interpreter.
0: I'd like to get started by um, allowing you the opportunity to introduce yourself, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, where you were born and potentially even a childhood memory that has stayed with you throughout the years.
1: Well, currently, uh I live here in Greenfield, California, and my name is Eulogio Espinosa, and I am currently working for CBDIO as the Interpreter Coordinator uh, for this organization. And I I was born in in Oaxaca, in San Juan Piñas, Hutzlahuaca, Oaxaca, a very small town, remote up in the mountains in the Sierras of Oaxaca. Uh, but I grew up here in California, in, in a smaller town called Santa Maria, California. And one of the most memorable uh, childhood experience I have it is, is in the late 90s and early 2000s. So during those times, cell phone wasn't really a thing or social media wasn't much of a thing. So we rode our bicycle a lot with me and my friends. We rode up and down Santa Maria from Presco Park to Water Park and from those distance in between, it's about eight miles. So that was, that's a very fun memory that I have. And I constantly think about it, how, how crazy we were, you know, kids are just riding our bikes down up and down the whole town. And now yeah, you don't see that often with kids now, now they connect with their friends over online, which is only about, uh, 10 years of difference or 20 years of difference now, but yeah.
0: Isn't that crazy? I know now. Now they're riding bikes virtually, right? Like with each other, <laughs> they'll connect on the computer and like play with uh with the in their games that they're riding bikes virtually. That's so funny. You say that you were born in Oaxaca. Do you have any memories of Oaxaca? Uh,
1: as a as a kid and, and maybe no, because I came here when I was three years old. But I did went back uh, in my early teen years, when I was 10 to 15, and it was quite a different world to go back there. It was definitely, uh, it's a culture shock, I guess, culture shock within my own culture, um, that you know here in the US, house looks very different. There's road, there's cars, there's, uh, the school is very different, even the food is. And then you go back to Oaxaca, where in my hometown, There isn't much of a pavement road. It's up in the mountains, small little village uh, of Pueblo. And although the food is very great, uh, but the culture is very different. You know, Kids act very different in school. The school system is very different. And for most part, growing up, I didn't speak Spanish or in my household, we never spoke Spanish. It was just mainly Mixteco. And then in school here in the US was English. So going back in Mexico, it was like, well, now I have to learn Spanish. And for most people sort of assume, well, you're Mexican, you speak Spanish. Uh, But the reality is Spanish was never spoken in my household. Uh, My father speaks a little bit of Spanish, but we never had or talked or they never forced us to speak Spanish because they didn't know it as well.
0: When you would go back to your pueblo in Oaxaca to visit, uh, were they mainly speaking in Mixteco? So you were able to utilize your language there and then hmm. out in town Spanish, or how did that work?
1: <laughs> so that that's another part of the culture track. But growing up here in the U.S. with my family, uh, we spoke Mixteco, or at least I thought it was, it was all, all the Mixteco there was. But once we got to the, my hometown, San Marpinas, uh, everybody there speaks speaks Misteco, they don't speak Spanish that much. Uh, they speak Misteco, but they look at me and they hear me speak and they're like, okay, your Misteco is a bit a little different, a bit off. We understand you, but it's off. And that's because I didn't speak it at a native level, right? I spoke it sort of enough that my parents understood me and they understood and I understood them. But once I spoke with the people that lived in our hometown for, you know, where they grew up where it was a constant daily thing um they definitely saw a difference of how i spoke it uh, sometimes i was made fun of it <laughs> and uh i guess that's where in uh, curiosity begins right of like at least to me i thought how is it possible that i speak and write english and now i'm learning spanish i'm gonna be able to speak and write spanish but my own language my own native indigenous language I am unable to speak it that well. and So that at a very early age, I began to um, dive in into my language of trying to learn it uh, as best as I can.
0: Yes. I'm thinking about your parents in navigating the systems in the U.S., whether that was the school system, medical system, uh, you know, any social service, let's just say, since they didn't speak Spanish and, um, you know, they... They, I, well, I'm assuming at this point that they didn't speak English uh, either. What do you recall, how did they navigate through the language? Were you the designated interpreter <laughs> um, you know, from the family or how did that work for you and your family?
1: So I have I have two more older siblings than myself. My sister, uh, she's about four years older than me, and then my br- brother is he's two years older than me. So they began in kindergarten much earlier uh, uh, before me. And at first, I remember it was just my mother. I remember going to doctor appointments with my mother when she was pregnant with my younger brother, and it was just sort of answering a, uh see and no in 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 Spanish or and she knew very little Spanish, she understood them very little, and at that time, a lot of the facilities in in Santa Maria, uh, Spanish interpreters or Spanish speaking staff was not that common, and when they did have it, uh, regardless, my mother still did not understand them that well, so it was, she was limited to uh, see and no, which is yes and no, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, if they asked her, does it hurt, and she would probably say yes, see, and if they tell her, uh, if it doesn't hurt, should just matter
0: no. Very 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 basic level, and so it was uh, family really that was uh, helping to navigate. Do you recall if you where you lived in California, where you moved, was there a big group of Oaxaca natives, or you know was it, were you a part of that community in California, or what do you recall from the area in which you grew up?
1: Uh, yeah so in in Santa Maria, there's definitely a huge population of uh or uh, Mistecos uh, 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 specifically and later on once once we either got to a bit higher uh uh grade school in in elementary still uh we started to learn English very fluently and we still spoke Misteco. um so my brothers and sister were good for. Being used as interpreters for not just my family and close relative too, but because my father was, uh, he was sort of a pillar of, of the community, and uh, so a lot of people went to our house seeking for help, or and you know, it was mainly for translating any document, and they'll either have my sister or my brother tra- uh, do as best as they can to uh, site translate uh, those documents or inform them what it is about. Uh, or even myself, I mean, I remember interpreting for school work, or for school um, school meetings at an early age since at the age of eight. Uh, in some places, they did have a Spanish interpreter, but even then, uh, my father or my mother did not understand them very well.
0: Yeah, that's true. So you would maybe even be interpreting for the interpreter, right? If they were if they were yes. speaking Spanish and then you'd interpret that to your parents. I cannot imagine, um, you know, at such a young age, uh, just the difficulties. And I say I cannot imagine, even though there are some similarities, obviously, um, growing up as the – I was the oldest uh, compared to your situation, but um, being able to interpret for my parents in school – Um, You know, just because sometimes or for the most part, there were thankfully uh, Spanish speaking employees at the school. And so, uh, you know, that that relieved sometimes if they were available, me having to do it. So they would save me. So but I can't imagine, you know, in your case, uh, being in an area where there potentially were no interpreters for your parents and at such a young age having to navigate through the language. When did you begin to get interested in this idea of languages and um, potentially even utilizing it as a in a professional setting?
1: I guess that would be uh, around 2000, the end of 2012 or early 2013. I remember by then I was uh, focused on a different career. Uh, So I was working in uh in the agriculture field but then i moved into to working in, in, the, in, the construction, in the construction area and i saw that there was always uh once in a while i either hear from a uh, a friend or a family uh member needing uh, uh somebody that spoke spoke english right because it was we don't have that knowledge of, of understanding what an interpreter is but they needed someone in that spoke English, either to go help or ask questions. Either their family was uh, detained by the police, police or their kid is having some issues in school or there were social services knocking on their door and yet they don't understand what's going on. And so I began to, this idea of well, I speak English, right? I speak English uh, fluently, and also I speak Mistako very flu- fluently at a native level now. And I began to think, what if I could utilize these skills? I know by that time, I know the uh, Spanish interpreters exist. Um, but with very little information about how to become a, a, a mistake interpreter or indigenous interpreter, and also, you know, you h- often hear about these, uh, you need to be certified, or you need to have credentials uh, to be a Spanish interpreter. So I started digging, and uh, unfortunately, uh, you can't find much about how to become an Instaco interpreter uh, during that time. And there was very little uh, training. or if there was some training, they were often very, uh, they were rare, and also you needed to know somebody that would make in those training because they weren't published uh, or through social media or through any broadcast or anywhere you can find them online. Uh, but in 2013, by the end the end of the year, I started getting involved with uh, CBDIO, uh, Centro Binacional, and other organization. And then I heard about the indigenous uh, training by, by Natividad Medical Foundation. So that's sort of my the training I worked up, I found that going to be suited for, for me to become an interpreter.
0: So that was once you were sort of in um involved and really trying to find your way through through identifying a specific training for interpreting interpreting that you came across um these opportunities. But you mentioned in the beginning when you were looking it wasn't something that was necessarily marketed or published it was it was difficult mm-hmm. i i it sounds like right you were really trying yeah. to just you know and and in particular i imagine because were you looking specifically for interpreter training of indigenous languages or at this point were you just looking for interpreter training uh you know just in general
1: uh so i i was looking for uh indigenous uh training programs since uh I, I knew by that time, by my research, I knew that to become a Spanish interpreter, there were trainings that you had to go through and you had to uh, had to be proficient in English and in Spanish. And a couple of the places that I asked for was when I questioned, like, would this training work for me as for a indigenous interpreter if I'm not going to be doing Spanish interpretation? Mm-hmm. And they sort of look, were very confused because uh, they sometimes have never heard the the word mistake or if they have heard about it, they didn't know where to send me or didn't know about any trainings. Uh, but it did help me or it did at least give me an idea of what I needed uh, of how to become an interpreter. And although there's some places where they really encourage you to to uh, find these trainings, such as the hospital or from the court, where they tell you, it's like, oh, yeah, you could go to trainings for it. Uh, but then when you look up at the trainings, they're only for either Spanish and English uh, uh, interpretation, but not for the misteco.
0: Yes, and then, of course, like you just mentioned, um, just having to navigate your way through and identifying and, you know, once you're in, I feel like once you're actually in networking with other interpreters by word of mouth potentially is how someone mentions uh an opportunity or a resource and then and then that's how you you stumble upon it, I'd say, right? Because maybe it's yeah. different now. Maybe with all, you know, the social media and all that stuff, maybe it's different now, but uh looking for for the right resource that fit your need, I, I imagine um, is, is, or was at that time difficult. Um, what did you find out once you came across the actual training that you were specifically looking for? How was it different, um, in comparing and contrasting maybe the training for, uh, Spanish interpreters, let's just say, um, or any other language as opposed to, the training for Indigenous interpreters, what did you find that was unique?
1: Uh, there, there's definitely diff, uh, different uh, things that I found that were very different. I mean, uh, the code, the ethic of interpreting are still the same, uh, but it's mostly about how you go about interpreting or how, because we know it's not a perfect uh, system of word by word, uh, but rather than the meaning and the terminology as well. And when you stumble upon very um, technical terms or words in in either in the medical or judiciary uh, area, in Mixteco those words don't exist. So you have to find a way to to interpret them. And well, when you don't have much experience interpreting and when you don't have uh, maybe uh, that in depth of, of knowledge about these areas, uh, other other participants maybe have figured it out or has a better way of communicating it because either they have already had experience in in those areas. So that is something that definitely helped. And also about the cultural shock, right? because there is still our community was always still gonna look at us as one of them and they don't really see the interpreting or as an interpreter uh, profession, but rather they, they see someone of their community just helping them. And in comparison to Spanish, when you when you see an interpreter, you know they're a professional. They are someone that were, either works with the hospital or work with the, with the court. But when you see somebody that's from your community as a, as a Mixteco or indigenous person, uh, they see you as, as one of them instead of seeing a professional um, that is here to assist you in the language. Um, so those are quite of the different things that you learn about in, in the training. And also you learn it in the field as well and when you have a training where there's a group of indigenous uh, interpreters they sort of share that experience and you're able to become familiar with it in comparison to if you don't have that and you just uh, start uh, doing the career going out in the field it just feels uh, like well okay this isn't what the textbook said or this isn't what i was supposed to be doing. It, it's very different from just the textbook perspective than it being out in the field.
0: Yes, most definitely. So once you start doing the training, do you identify with the training and the profession? Do you say this is absolutely something I'm, I'm interested in doing? And if so, what were your first steps towards working in a professional setting?
1: So once the training is, is completed and I feel I'm ready or I feel I have the tool and knowledge of and the profession of, of being an interpreter. uh, It's very difficult to start off, uh, especially in the early uh, 2010s, uh, since a lot of the provider that you might be working with are the LSP, the language service provider, or the agency or institution, such as the core or hospital or school. uh, It's very difficult for you to step in foot because they don't, like doing contracts with one individual, they prefer to have a contract with uh with the one big agency that has all these language, and you know they have one contract with one agency, and they cut they have uh, multiple mistecos or multiple uh, indigenous languages. Uh, but when you go by yourself knocking doors, uh, most of the time you you're not going to get that door open. Uh, but working with nonprofits, working alongside with them, uh, where you know they are being contacted by the school. So then now the nonprofit contacts you to go through the service for the school, and then you get paid either through the nonprofit or through the school directly. And that sort of takes up a bit of time. It's not gonna happen from one day to another, but building up the network of the people you know, the organizations that you work with, and even other profession, once you get familiar with lawyers as well, they might recommend you uh, but it's it's a very slow process at the beginning.
0: What what were your steps when you first started uh, going out there, and and what what were the what was the most challenging uh, encounter that that you faced?
1: So I think that uh, once you sort of advertise that you're a mistake interpreter either through LinkedIn or other uh, uh, professional career area, uh, websites. Uh, everybody starts looking for you, but then they have certain uh, re- uh, requirements that you need, such as, you know, you have to be a trainee, but you also have to be certified. But because in this language, there's no certification for it, therefore they cannot hire you. I remember when I first created my LinkedIn profile, I probably within the first three months, I got about 20 different uh, L- LSP um. Uh, Agency that contacted me or recruiters that contacted me. And although with a few of them, I was able to work with them. Uh, but many others I wasn't able to work with them because they wanted a very specific credentials or certification. And for the language itself, it did not exist. So therefore they couldn't hire me.
0: And these were were these for maybe medical or judicial? Or I'm I'm just curious to what type of certifications they were looking for?
1: Uh, they were looking for both uh especially in the medical uh i believe there's there's quite a few of the, these organizations throughout california or different states and they they're an association or there are actually the boards that that certifies you and, and gives you the i guess the licensing to do the do the career as an interpreter but uh I could get that for Spanish, but then it wouldn't be Misteco. And that's sort of what they have wanted, the Misteco certification. And even though we, we still continuously get those calls, uh, where it's like, we want a certified, uh, Misteco interpreter. And each time we have to inform that there's no certification for the Misteco, but the the interpreters do have a Belisa 40 hours training or 50 hours training of, of the career or the, the training to be an interpreter.
0: I see. So once you started in your journey as an interpreter and you started getting these calls and some challenges with the whole certification conversation and all that, <laughs> what what did you find that that most intrigued you about doing this in a professional setting? Uh
1: that there's a lot of uh you you never really know what you're gonna get be getting into, either it's through uh, a legal case or a medical case. And some of these cases are quite delicate. And sometimes because there's a lot of variants of the Mixteco language itself, sometimes it's not the same. So you have to really be um, careful with that. And often enough, you inform the lawyers or the doctors that it's not the same variant, and it, you can continue uh, but because there's no other mistake interpreter that they could find, uh, sometimes they really want to just push it, push it, and they they want you to continue. But unfortunately, you can't because there's no uh, compat- compatibility there. But when there is a compatibility, uh, there's definitely a lot of things that happens for our within our community that we don't really uh, look at. Uh, from legal cases, you find them having some uh, criminal charges against them. Or in medical, where you know their their child is in life support, and these are things that you don't really think about about your community uh, because you don't see it unless they're they're your family member that it happens to them that you sort of hear about it and know it. But when you become an interpreter, you see all this and some some of it is heartbreaking. Uh, some of it is it's a fantastic that you're able to assist them. You're able to help them understand what's going on with their child's health or what's going on with their legal case. You're not the lawyer, you're not the doctor, but you're able to assist them to understand what's going on.
0: You mentioned quickly that sometimes uh, or in the beginning you would walk into some of these assignments and realize that the individual was speaking um, another dialect of misteco. Am I using the correct term? Uh, and yeah and therefore you weren't able to continue. Is that something that as language interpreters and understanding the indigenous languages, is that something that should be highlighted? Should we should we be thinking about the fact that it's not just one language, it's several under yes. one category, is that correct?
1: Yes, that is absolutely correct. So the Misteko language, the one I do, uh, this there's a lot more variant i mean if those that have heard about misteco they often maybe hear about misteco alto misteco bajo or misteco de la costa or misteco de guerrero uh so that's only four variant right but the reality is there's about more than 86 variants of the misteco languages wow. and it's not a one size fit all so one misteco is not going to be compatible with all those 86 variants So like. Categorizing the, the the language is uh it goes back to the anthropologists that that went to Oaxaca and they were the one that categorized it. And it's sort of there's we don't have the map to show you right now, but there's sort of the upper higher, which would uh northwest, I guess that would be sort of the Misteco Bajo, and then sort of to the central south of Oaxaca, that would be what is known mm-hmm. as Alto. Uh, but even then, like in the community itself, don't uh, don't call their Misteco Bajo or Misteco Alto. And when they do call call or mention their their Misteco being Bajo, that was because either someone else have already told them that that is their language. Uh, but the reality is their Misteco is going to be there from their hometown or from their district. For example, my Misteco uh, is considered as Misteco Bajo, but the way I always you say is I speak Misteco from San Juan Pinas here in the us we call them uh tribes or mission nation, tri- tribal nations and in, Miste- in in mexico we call them as indigenous groups uh, There's the we don't use the word tribe uh we are, we use the word etni- uh, ethnicity so the mixteco is uh the region is there's is in oaxaca guerrero and in puebla so it covers quite quite some space around the, that area um so we aren't direct descendant of the Nahuatl or the Aztecs, but rather they were a different indigenous group. Uh, although, you know, the Aztecs uh did conquer most of the south south of Mexico or what we know as as Mexico today. And so they did, I guess, essentially conquer the Mistecos and most of Oaxaca. But we are a different um, uh, indigenous group from them. So often uh, enough, we hear in Mexico, or all, all the Mexicans, they're proud to be as the Aztecs. And although that is true for most, but there are different other uh, groups of indigenous in, in Mexico.
0: Wow, so amazing. Always uh, amazing to hear. A little bit about you know the the actual history that of course isn't taught here, right? In the US, we have to go searching for that. So thank you for sharing that. I'm I'm I'd like to for us to get into now how your career has blossomed uh in in this profession. I know that you started interpreting at some point, you were working with various nonprofit organizations, providing your service. You stepped out of the profession for a while. But then uh, you had this calling for it and came right back to it. Talk to us a little bit about that time in your in your career and what that was all about.
1: Oh, about 2017 uh, or the end of 2016, I stepped away from the nonprofit world and the interpreting world as well. And I guess you never really leave your community, uh, especially when you are a Mistake or interpreter or when you... Many of your friends still works in the nonprofit world or other organization that helps your community. And during in the late 2019, uh, during the the refugee and asylum seeker that were coming through Mexico, uh, some of them were indigenous as well from Central America and also from from Oaxaca. And many of my uh, old friends and and partners, I guess I would say that we worked alongside uh, as an interpreter, they contacted me and they mentioned and that they needed some Mistako interpreters for some very delicate cases. And they don't know who to contact. And they they thought of me that maybe I would be able to assist them. And they just asked that, you know, if I could volunteer some, some of these uh, work for them and seeing what was going on And just hearing about some of these cases uh, made me think about it. And there isn't much to think about when your community uh, is calling for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, At least for me, I I truly felt it uh, from my parents' experience and my other family members' experience. And I agree, I agree to assist. And by that time, uh, next year, at the beginning of the year, the pandemic happens, and with the pandemic happening, and we know that there's a lot of information that needs to be sent out to the community in English, in Spanish, in all the other languages throughout the whole world. And even more people contact me and be like, "Can you somehow help us, or we would need help like this, or what's your suggestion, or, or just listen to this audio to think that's enough information, or do you think it's accurate?" And I started getting involved back again. Becoming active, and by the end of the uh, that year in 2020, I was contacted by one of my friend uh, Miguel and also a uh, you know, friend of mine, uh, Doctor Sarai Martinez, and they contacted me from CBDIO informing me if I wanted the job as an interpreter coordinator and seeing what we could do for the for our community and for the interpreting services, and I agreed, and there I. I I agreed to join the team and here I am since then.
0: And here you are now, <laughs> helping to solve a lot of these issues that, through the experiences that you've had, I imagine now you're able to connect the dots. and And thanks to those experiences and the opportunity now that you've been given in order to coordinate some of these services, I'd like to now get into uh, having conversations for for those that are listening and potentially even working with the indigenous language interpreters, uh, being able to to sort of, Think about some things that potentially may not be thought about when working with these particular uh, groups. And so I'd like to first ask you um, the beginning of, of our conversation, Eulogio, you mentioned that the indigenous people will see you as part of the community. And having had conversations with uh, other interpreters from other specializations or other languages, I should say. One of the main concerns with that is the fact that because they see you as someone from the community, they may not be as inclined to open up because they feel that potentially that conversation might get to somebody else in the community, right? Because they see you Mm -hmm. as another community member. Did you find this to be the case in your experiences that there was a lot of training, not just with the person that was obtaining the service, but also the service user?
1: Uh, Yes, definitely. Uh, Yes. So. The community is always going to see when uh one of one of them or one of as we call it in in spanish and Mexico, is paisano right they're always going to see you as a paisano first then then a profession because now somebody in the room speaks a language like them and there are times where they do think you are there to help them regardless of what the doctor or what the judge or the lawyers will say you're there to help them uh, but that's not the case as interpreters. We're there to assist in the language, but we're but we're not there to help them to either, you know, win the case or 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 get the case dismissed or for their health to be more, get better service or really, or sort of like that. And one of the some of the issues that we do come upon is also them not wanting to speak with the interpreter because they do feel that, If somebody else within their community knows about their health problem, they're not going to be so uh, inclined to to speak or talk with the interpreter. Um, So there is that there is that sort of uh, because it's very new and a lot of our community are not used to it. So they do get that uh, uh, fear, I guess, fear and also sort of a shame to share it with somebody within their own community. Mm. but once you're past that and and once they have worked it with enough interpreter or have had the experience working with their uh, mistake or indigenous interpreter, it works it works flawless uh, you would imagine it working as how with any other language uh it it works very perfectly once they get used to it
0: i'm I'm wondering if your interpreter introduction is a little bit different or if there if there is an Anything that's added when you're explaining your role to uh, the person that you're assisting is there or no? It's just a matter of getting used to.
1: Uh, so there is a, a introduction that I really try to 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 do, and uh, that's often uh, often enough. Like as interpreter, we're we in in textbooks, you know, do a pre session and you know, inform on who you are, what you do. After enough, you don't get that chance, you, you know, you're just put into a situation or uh, in, in the room with them or over the phone with them. And they're like, OK, interpret them. Uh, but one of the things I like to begin is uh, saying, can you hear me? If it's in over the phone, I always ask them, can you hear me? And, you know, once they hear that in, in Misteko, uh, which would be, actually, so, OK, and so can you hear me talking? And they say yes as sort of like, that's already a positive. So that way, I know that they understood me. And then I tell them like, my name is uh, Lachio Spinoza, and I am here to provide you with interpreting service. Everything what the doctors or the judge or lawyers gonna tell you, I'm gonna interpret that into Mixteco or our language. And then everything what you said, I'm gonna uh, interpret that to them, just exactly how you're telling me. And just understand that everything what you say here is is gonna be between us in 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 this conversation, like just in the room, because there isn't a word for confidentially and privacy. Uh, there isn't that uh, exact word to interpret it.
0: Got it. See, I learned something new every time I have these conversations. You also talked about um, the fact that uh, when you were first starting out as an interpreter in the Mixteco language, that you had individuals or agencies, rather, that would request a certification. And, of course, that was proven to be impossible because the certifications didn't include certifying Mixteco language. Um, So... What are you learning, or how have you learned to navigate through that now, as you're as you're searching now, as you're coordinating these services? How is it different for you working with hiring uh, Indigenous language interpreters that you know uh, these these entities don't offer certification for?
1: So we understand that there's certification, and for us to recruit new interpreters or interpreters that already are experienced interpreters is we do require them to have the uh, introduction training in the judiciary. And uh, there are some training that focus on indigenous language uh, throughout the state of California, and also in the medical as well. And even CBDIO has had its own in-house training uh, that that does focus around the medical area and general but I also focus on the indigenous language of how we could better assist them and creating those network with one interpreter to another. And when the agency or institution comes to us, we do inform about this, where there is no certification of it, but CBDIO does give endorsement to these interpreters that we have in our network, because we know that they have had at least the 40 hour training for the year.
0: So the requirement is mostly on the training itself and something that it can also be offered in your particular case internally um, and have them go through that process before they're actually out in the field, correct?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: What are what are some recommendations that you you would like to give to maybe an interpreter that is trying to make their way through the profession and trying to find agencies to work with? What are some of the things or how can they approach uh, these institutions and be able to basically say, you know, I'm 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 an indigenous language interpreter, however. Right. Or what could they say when they're approaching institutions?
1: Uh, So. For more, most LSP uh, agency, uh, which are the language service uh, providers, uh, those are usually the, the main one that does translation and interpreting. Uh, those they could hire you, uh, but just always have ready for the information, such as when they ask you, why don't you have certification? And you can inform them of the details of why you're not certified. Uh, so you have any certification because there is no, but you do have enough trainings that you are uh, proficient in the language the target language and in english and when you approach any schools or hospitals uh, those are a bit harder to 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 get into since they do have a they already have a lsp that they work with and they usually don't like working with one language individually or have one contract with one they'll prefer to call one. Uh, one agency that's gonna be able to provide them with seven or eight different uh, indigenous language in comparison to just one.
0: What do you recommend to institutions that um, have pockets of communities uh, of indigenous languages? I I ask because I'm I'm going to I'm going to share a story first of a personal experience with regard to that, and then you could answer how you know uh, institutions could could potentially scan, um, you know, for these languages. But um, I know that one time I entered into a school meeting. Uh, it's called a 504. Uh, plan meeting in which um, there are several people that are involved, including the student and the parent. And um, at the very beginning, right when we started and they're doing introductions of the entire team to introduce why we're there and, and all of that, the parent introduced themselves and the social worker immediately caught on to the fact uh, and I'm not sure if they knew the parent or the family before we entered that meeting. I'm not certain or if it was just based on the way in which the parent responded. Uh, but the social worker, uh, as soon as the parent gave their name and was done, uh, wanted to say something for their record. And what she stated was, I believe that the parent is speaking, uh, is it has a, a different language as, as their native language, that it's not Spanish. And so uh, she said, I'd like to ask the parent if this is the case, which was interpreted. Uh, And she said, no, it's, uh," she mentioned it. it, I'm sorry. I'm not going to remember. It was an indigenous language, but I I don't recall what that specific language was to which of course uh, at that point, um, you know, she said, but it's okay. Spanish is okay. We can continue in Spanish. Uh, And the, the more she spoke, the more I realized, yes, it's true. I could tell that there is, you know, like sort of like an accent with her Spanish. Um, But she proceed. we proceeded with the meeting. However, it was noted that for the following meeting, they would like to request an interpreter in her language, in her native language. And it was an indigenous language, actually. Uh, And it took me by surprise that we did not know this ahead of time. And rather than than assuming that we didn't ask as an entity right in this in in this setting it was a school setting which language um of course you know the their language list could be so long but something that could have been scanned and identified in terms of what are the communities that we are providing services to uh, once a year before the beginning of the year so on and so forth I think it can, can actually establish what pockets of languages are out there in our community so that we can mm-hmm. then work with language service providers that are going to cover these languages when needed. But now that you work in in, in an entity that actually puts that information together and as the resources for other agencies, what are your recommendations for those that are working putting together systems and processes for uh, language access in, of their community services?
1: So there is a huge challenge there. Uh, it's just, it's not uh, an isolated situation with uh, the indigenous language, but we understand that in schools, uh, particularly, uh, especially when they say, uh, what ethnicity you are, what race you are, uh, or even when they ask you what country you're from. And for our community, our indigenous community, when they put Hispanic or Latino, or they put Me- Mexico as their, their country. We fall in the crack or we fall in this idea of uh, assumption that we speak Spanish. Automatically. There isn't. Yeah. And although there is a little, I guess, the little checkbox of saying others or otros uh, where you could write it. But because we're constantly told we're Hispanic, we're Mexican, and although that is true, but we are also indigenous and we do have our own language uh, besides the uh spanish uh, language and it is gonna just be a challenge and it is just becoming more familiar with it uh i know there are certain areas where our community migrates more but once you see it at least one time you might be uh, be more a bit active because it might not be the last time that you're gonna see it it might not be the last family that you're gonna see it because our community travels in small groups. So it's like once one group is uh, establishing one particular city, there's sort of this chain migration. They're, they're one of their relative or one of the, when somebody else from their community starts going to that new uh, location or new town. And that's how essentially uh, Santa Maria was. I mean, there was a group of Mistecos and a group of people from our town and there was The chain migration started there throughout the years, and as the population grew, we became more noticeable in that Mm town.
0: What are some of those recommendations uh, now, Elogio, that you can give to uh, Indigenous interpreters that are out there uh, sort of... Uh, fighting, uh, for a lack of a better word, um, for recognition of of the language itself, of the fact that, you know, they are trained interpreters in, in a different language, potentially maybe even with with their contracts or things of that nature. Now that you've had experience in the profession, both as an interpreter and now coordinating the services, What's what are some of those recommendations that you would like to give the new generation of interpreters, specifically of indigenous languages that they should, you know, could add to their interpreter toolkit, if you will?
1: That would be networking and the consistent training that there is. And uh, also not just the training of being an interpreter, but also training Uh, or being within the community because there may be some uh, either new words that you have not heard or maybe the community understands it in a different manner and you could add that in your um, I guess in your dictionary in, in your memory and that would help you better serve the community and although you may not be able to interpret all the mystical but at least you'll have a better understanding of them and creating this network of with other indigenous interpreter is that it's very useful because maybe if you you take an assignment that your language is not compatible but you know another interpreter that may be compatible with them and they're a phone way a call away they're not going to be looking for or the agency is going to have to go back in the way from scratch and start all over again looking for another mystical interpreter but rather than you could recommend them or that it could also work away the other way where somebody else recommends you now you have this new assignment that you could take upon and as i mentioned it does it does take a very slow process of creating this network either with other interpreters or with agency or even with the non-profits as well but once you once you take that journey uh, once you have been there, uh, enough time and you do an excellent job, uh, you're going to be known, you're going to be known either through the court system or through the medical area, or even with, um, among lawyers, cause they are the one that takes these cases as well.
0: Yeah. And I know that when I, when I think about, um, your experience and when you first started in terms of training and all that, um, as you'd mentioned it, it. At that time, it was difficult to find things even online, because not because they didn't exist, but maybe because it wasn't published online yet that you, you had easily uh, or easy access to finding, where as to now, I imagine it's a little bit easier, but uh, potentially not as many trainings, right? But uh, what are some of those training uh, potentially resources that you could share with up-and-coming interpreters um, that are specifically looking for training in, in of Indigenous language uh, communities?
1: We know most of these trainings, they happen uh, within a non-profit organization or organization that helps the community. And the organization that usually do these trainings is uh, Mycop that is in Oxford. uh CRLA. They are a uh a statewide uh, organization as well and they do focus on indigenous language uh cbdio the organization that i work for and i believe there might be uh, other uh institution or organization too that focus around indigenous language i know that uh i'm probably gonna get this right the oh cia in Oregon does that too um they do some of these trainings and For the most part, all these trainings are free, and they do require at least the forty hours or fifty hours of very very focused time and the homework and the research. But they are generally free. Uh, The cost of these trainings in the Spanish language or other uh, or or other trainings there for interpreters they they range anything from three hundred to two thousand dollars. But for indigenous interpreter, because there's a high demand, and there is a need for it. Uh, they're usually free.
0: Wow, so great. I, I, As you're speaking about the trainings and things like that, uh, what's coming to mind is the opportunity for individuals to go into the schools, like the high schools, um where there are big pockets of uh indigenous language communities and be able to speak with the, that generation there and you know just informing them about the need uh, for indigenous language interpreters uh out in the industry and and the training if that's something that they could do uh in in the time between the time that they're you know going to school doing something else maybe even right or uh I know we spoke about in the school district where I used to work for the, the potentially conversation of making it a trade, right. Bringing in the training for those individuals in the, um, uh, career technical portion. Right. So, yeah. um, that was, uh, that was always something that, that we would have conversations about. And I imagine like it would be great <coughs> if these programs were out there. Well, I'm sure it exists somewhere. I'm sure someone absolutely has already thought about that and go out into, These local high schools and talk about, you know, come on out as a means of recruiting, right, Uh, to recruit in their languages. Yeah,
1: definitely. As we see the the profession of being an indigenous interpreter in different areas, families or even, you know, uh, we see interpreters working with uh, government uh, uh, agency, uh, such as either press communication or information that's being sent out throughout the radios or TVs. Um, people start to see it as a professional career or our community start to see it. Even parents starts to see it and they tell their kid, look, he does this for a living. He speaks our language and he does this for a language. Maybe one day you could become an interpreter too. So we are starting to see these changes and you know we could motivate and we could do a lot of these uh, presentation also in schools, informing of the career. Uh, in comparison to going to college, uh, it is also a great uh, path to take, but becoming an interpreter, uh, it does require less less, less uh, hours of training. Uh, so once you at least get at the 40 or 50 hours of training throughout the year, you are ready to, to go out in the fields and it will take time to do the net, uh, networking and creating your own network. But... It is a very easy path if you're proficient in English and proficient in the target language.
0: Yeah, definitely. I know that I've always enjoyed going out into um uh, the middle schools for a career day. The coach the coaches the um counselors would would invite uh invite me to go and um do the the presentation and it was always nice to I mean it's junior high or middle school so the attention span is like you know, very little, (laughs) but, but at least knowing that, um, you know, you embedded a little seed in that, that, yeah, Hey, this is a profession. Actually, it's not, you're not just taking Spanish class for the sake of having, you know, conversation or asking somebody a question, right. Just so, you know, you can actually utilize this in a professional setting in the future. Um, that was always just fun to think that, that I could potentially be uh, planting a seed for the younger generations to think about later on. So, um, yeah, I could only imagine for indigenous languages. Elogio, uh, is there any other recommendation or any other thing you would like to share with this particular audience that you feel is important for people to know about, uh, indigenous interpreters?
1: I think that we always see interpreters. I think the career itself uh, is something to be uh, uh, interpreting is not uh, word by word. And uh, uh, we're not also, as us as interpreters, we're not a walking dictionary where we could just uh, interpret something or translate something, uh, the actual def- definition of it. instead there is a bit more of a challenge there since the Language itself is not a written language, so there is no translation of it, there is no written of it. Not that it can't be written, but even then, if it was written, the general population do not read Misteko. And if they can read it, it's probably best for them to read in Spanish. And, well, for the career itself, uh, it is a challenge to become a misteco interpreter. But so there are challenges that we still deal with, either with the institution or within our community. So it's a lot, lot of moving pieces to be together for it to work. And when it, it does work, it works perfect. Um, it works amazingly. I mean, I, when I go to the doctor and I speak perfectly English, sometimes it's a bit intimidating to be at the doctor. Either you don't have the right questions or you don't know. And as a mistake interpreter, I've seen it of uh, where the patient and the doctor, they very well together. They are able to have jokes with each other. They're able to ask questions to one another. So when it does work, it works amazing. And I think that is what we have been always pushing that these uh, that the language access to An interpreter is always going to benefit everybody, it benefits the interpreter, it benefits the institutions, and it also benefits our community in general.
0: Absolutely. Yes. And and yes, there are so many moving parts. But I think that um, even just with providing information such as what you've provided today with some of those resources, and in addition to highlighting this, uh, the very important topic of networking, uh, I think particularly within the interpreting community, that we are able to connect with uh, other interpreters, such as Indigenous interpreters, in which like you mentioned, even if I say, Eulogio, are you available for this uh, language? And you say, no, that's not actually a language that I speak. However, you could be potentially be able to connect me with someone that does speak it because you, you've you networked and you, know, you have the connections uh, within that community. And so I absolutely agree in terms of Networking, um, connect with other interpreters. Find out where these trainings are, and then don't. There's a there's a popular word right now on TikTok, and please don't shame me for <laughs> even knowing this. <laughs> I'm too I'm too old to be knowing this stuff, but they call it gatekeeping, right? Um, and so definitely don't gatekeep the resources that are out there. You just shared a lot of training resources that are free for indigenous language interpreters and so if you know of anyone that is speaking an indigenous language and might maybe it would be interested in a part-time job or you know and just knowing what it would be like offer the training let them know that there's trainings out there even if you just introduce the information and then you allow them the opportunity to go seeking you know like you mentioned earlier as long as we spark the curiosity right they might be interested or Just in finding out what that's all about, and then be pleasantly surprised that they could actually make a career out of it. I think that my main goal and objective with everything that I do currently, especially with this podcast, is about highlighting the profession so that individuals know that this is actually a profession, that it's not you know, oh, it's my other language and I kind of do this, you know, for the kindness of my heart, which, you know, a lot of times, of course, that is the case, but we also need to pay bills. So, <laughs> and it's a beautiful profession as well. So I'm so happy that I was able to offer this platform uh, for you to come on Elogio and, and talk a little bit more about some of those challenges that you've had as an Indigenous language interpreter, and uh, but also highlighting the fact that you're now coordinating services for number nonprofit organization and uh, being able to make these connections now yourself uh, in in what once started as you identifying some gaps and seeing that there was a need. Now you get the opportunity to fill those gaps with your experiences and with your networking and the training. And then, of course, jumping onto platforms such as this one to talk about more about um the need so once again thank you very much for the opportunity it's a pleasure to be able to have you on the show and be able to share this information and last but not least where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do
1: uh, the work i do or the organization, nonprofit organization that i work for is uh, centrovinacional and the website will be centrovinacional.org and, uh, the long name of it is Centro Vinacional para uh, Desarrollo para uh, Comida Indígena Oaxaqueña, uh, which is why it's CBDIO. And um, so that is the org- nonprofit organization that I work with. And they could find us through our uh, website or our uh, Instagram page, which is, is at CBDIO underscore, I believe, and also on our Facebook page, and it will be there at Centro Nacional as well. And thank you as well for having me here. It is a great opportunity to be able to share my experience, and share maybe the information and resources I've been given. And I'm going to be very happy to see new interpreters this year or even retaining more interpreters for this year. And, you know, we have seen the devastation that happened in the uh, Central Coast with the uh, rains and flooding and provide those information to our community, but also during the COVID and hopefully, you know, once we are able to have more interpreters and more uh, professional in this career, we're able to be in every level of the government offices in helping throughout the communication all the information that needs to be sent out, but also being able to create this new profession where our youth could also continue speaking their language and uh, not be ashamed of uh, speaking this indigenous language that they speak.
0: Oh. My goodness, yes, that could have been a whole topic in and of itself, right? Is really yes. highlighting that importance of um not losing the language for in, in the future generations, that they're proud of of it. And that's why it's so important for us to highlight that it's out there and and that it could be utilized in a way in which can give back to the community and 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 it could and it, it's a profession and then it could pay you at the end of the day, you know? So um yes. anyway. Eulogio, it was such a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity, and we'll be in touch. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com, and click on the Connect With Me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, as Brand the Interpreter, or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.